Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be taken from Psalms, chapter 85, verses 6 through 13. That can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 526. Again, that is Psalms, chapter 85, verses 6 through 13. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in all our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. that you're here. Uh, we welcome you and it encourages us that you're here and we want to be an encouragement to you. I was just thinking this morning about how wonderful it is to be able to come and worship God together. Uh, what would it be like if you came here this morning and you were the only one? Nobody else cared. Nobody else cared what God had done for them. No one else cared enough to worship. Isn't it wonderful that we're surrounded by so many that love God Love God so much that it's not just a Sunday thing for them, but they live for God every day. We want to talk about that life and about that life that we can have again in just a few moments. We're looking forward to this weekend. Our children bring so much energy and, and beauty into our life, and we look forward to Trunk or Treat Saturday night. But we also look forward to next Sunday, the opportunity to go out on We Are the Sermon Day and let our actions, because of our love for God and our love for others, speak louder than probably any other sermon that will be preached all year within these walls. Within these walls, we hear a lot of sermons in a year. But what about outside these walls? Let's give the community of Mount Juliet an opportunity to see unconditional love, to see sacrificial service, and every opportunity we have in doing this next Sunday to give the glory to God. There are opportunities for you to get involved through the Sunday morning Bible classes. If your Sunday morning Bible classes is involved in a particular work that it's just not your skill set or you want to be involved in another, uh, there will be a list at the information center of what the other classes are doing. That list is there to encourage you. If there's another work that you want to be involved in, you're welcome to be involved in that uh, this coming Sunday. If you're not a part of a Sunday morning Bible class, first we'd invite you to become a part of one. It's such a blessing in our life to study God's Word and to have that fellowship. But then if you're not a part of one and, and you want to look at that list, be sure and do that. Our goal is to have everybody going out. There are some works that are very physical in nature and there are other works that are, are literally writing cards and notes and encouraging others in the community around us. So there's all kind of opportunities uh, for you to be involved. We've tried to have opportunities for everybody. And so find your place 
in God's body next week, next Sunday, as we work together on We Are the Sermon Day. In 1966, Mark had just finished his eighth grade. And between his eighth grade and his ninth grade year, that summer, he worked for a brick mason and he saved every dollar he made. And it totaled $175. And he, brought it, and he went out and it just so haps, happened that the Gibson J45 that he wanted was exactly $175. He played that all throughout high school. It became his most prized material possession that he had. He took it with him to college. He played it all throughout college. After college, he opened a business and he said that that Gibson was his way to, to relieve himself of stress at the end of days. He would pull the Gibson out and he enjoyed relaxing with it. But in 1978, burglars broke in and they took several things and one of the things they took was his Gibson, his most treasured possession that he had on earth. A lot of years went by. In 2002, he was just killing some time in Nashville, Tennessee, and he walked into a store near the river. In downtown Nashville, he walked in and there was a red starburst Gibson J45 that caught his eye. It brought back a lot of good memories. He reached up and he pulled it down and it literally brought back that same feeling that he had had so many times throughout his younger life. But he began to notice it. It had the same nicks and scars on it that his Gibson had. And he examined it closely and was able to prove that was his guitar. He went back and he told his mom about it and she asked if he bought it. He said, Mom, I couldn't. The price on that $175 guitar now is $2,000. Well... A few weeks later was his birthday and his mother surprised him by giving him his old Gibson back. He said, you know, I think I actually, if it's possible, I actually appreciate it more now than what I did before. It still brings back such great feelings and, and I appreciate having it back. Doesn't that sound a little bit like a modern day parable? Bought once, left, bought twice. Appreciated in spite of the nicks and the scratches and the scars. Isn't it amazing what God has done for humanity? He created us and, and we were His, but we left Him through our sin. And, and yet when He takes us back, He doesn't take us back with a stiff arm. He takes us back with a warm embrace and in spite of our scars and our nicks and our scratches in life, He loves us as much as He ever has loved us. Could I begin this lesson by asking you, do you know how much that God loves you? Do you realize how special you are out of all of creation? Hasn't God made some beautiful masterpieces of creation? Right now we could drive through the Smoky Mountains and we could see the beautiful leaves and we can make our way all the way up to the New England states and we would see just breathtaking views of what God has done. We could go to the top of a snow-covered mountain and we could look down into the valley and we could see some amazing views of what God has made. We could go snorkeling and see exotic fish. That would just be amazing to see. We could go out on the farm and we could see a peacock 
Or we could watch a stallion thunder across a pasture. And we would still be in awe of God's creation. But there's something special about you. God made you different from all of the rest of creation. And Genesis 2 and 7, he breathed into you a living soul. He didn't just want to look at a masterpiece, although we are, when, when you think how, how majestically and marvelously we are made. Man can't create something that functions like the eye. Man can't come up with robotics that functions like a human being and can do what a hand can do or the feet or the legs can do. Man is intrigued even to this day by the structure of our DNA. But listen, you're not so marvelous because of all the physical ways in which God has made you. You're marvelous because God has made you in such a way that he wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you even when it's strained and even when it's broken. He wants that relationship renewed again. When we consider revival and we look at the definition of revival, we know from last week that we study the fact that it is to be made alive again. It's the idea of consciousness. It's the idea of vigor and of strength. Spiritually, sin breaks that relationship. And what God wants to do is to make us alive again. God wants to make us strong again. God wants to make us vigorous. God wants to make us spiritually awake so that we can enjoy all that he has to offer. In the chapter that we've been studying last week and this week, I want to remind you of what led up to the text that was just so capably read a few moments ago. In Psalm 85, 1 through 3, you remember last week we studied about the fact that this is the part of the psalm where praise is offered and apparently this was sometime after they probably returned from captivity and they're allowed to go back. Remember, Jerusalem was in disarray and so the city is destroyed, the temple is destroyed and the, the walls and the gates are destroyed. And so here he offers the praise of thanksgiving that God found favor to give them back their land and they realize they're not in captivity anymore because God was the one that delivered them from that captivity. And they realize that that was true because they were offered the forgiveness of sins. God covered their sin. God's wrath had been appeased through God's forgiveness. That leads us to the petition in verses 4 through 7. See there in verse 4? Restore us, O God, of our salvation. To put back into place. God, we've gotten ourselves through our sin out of place. God, we're asking you to put us back into place. If we could do it ourselves, we could be our own Savior. But God, we can't. Will you restore us? Notice verse 6. Will you revive us again? Sin brings us to the point of spiritual death. Will you make us alive again? Will you revive us again? We know then the rest of verse 6 could be true, that we could have the joy that would come from being God's people. We know that that could only happen in verse 7 because of the mercy of the Lord, the salvation that he would offer. But then in verses 8 through 13 that was just read, it's a passage that tells us that we can have hope. Listen, all the things that we just talked about to be restored and be revived, if it rests solely upon us, it could not happen. 
And so someone says, why do you think it could happen? And our answer is because God has told us what he has already done for us. Our hope and our confidence in the fact of what God has done for us. And so what I'd like for us to do is, is spend some time this morning seeing what God has done for us. But first, as we go to Psalm 85 and verse 8, look in Psalm 85 and verse 8. I'd like for you to see that revival comes only by turning to God. We mentioned last week that revival does not come because we turn to the point of saying, I want to be revived again. Revival comes because we turn to God. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who renews life again. And notice here what the psalmist said. Remember, he's just offered the praise, but then also he offers the petition for restoration and revival. And it's in that setting that he says in verse 8, I will hear what, the, what God, the Lord, will speak. Do you see what he's doing? He's turning to God. He's asked something. God, will you restore us? Will you revive us? Now I'm going to turn to God, and I'm going to wait and see what he speaks. What is he going to answer us? When I read that, I could not help but think of that little short book of Habakkuk. If you would turn to Habakkuk, I'd like for you to see how wise it is for us to turn to God. In Habakkuk, this was the time, probably before the text that we're reading, this was the time right before the fall of Judah. Of Judah, and, and they're going to be taken after the fall, of course, a small remnant that remains the captivity in Babylon. And so... You can imagine here is Habakkuk living a righteous life, but all around him are people of Israel who are no longer living a righteous life. Now what's God going to do? He's going to raise up another nation to chastise, to destroy Judah, except for that small remnant. Now let that sink in. What does that mean for the very few that were righteous? That means they were going to have a difficult time. They, in a sense, were going to pay for the sins of the others on this earth so far as sowing and reaping. They were going to live through some difficult days. And you can imagine Habakkuk looking around saying, Lord, there's some of us trying so hard to do right. Why is all this evil prevailing around us? As a matter of fact, look there in verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Oh Lord, how long will I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you. Violence. See, he's saying, God, look at this violence and you'll not save. He even asked why. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contentions arise. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wickedness surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Do you see how honest he is with God? God, let me tell you what I see. I want to tell you everything that I see right now is unfair. And you say that you've put laws into place, but I don't see your laws living out. I see wickedness trumping righteousness right now. I don't see justice prevailing right now. I can see the violence. Surely you can see the violence. God, where are you? Can you talk to God like that? Can you bring God your doubts? Can you bring God your concerns? Is your God big enough to handle what you're dealing with? If you think you're going through something right now that nothing could ever help you through it, you're wrong. Our God can handle anything we're going through. 
He can help us through any challenge, struggle, disappointment, or pain that we're dealing with. But He can only help us if we're willing to take it to Him. Revival comes by turning to God. Death comes when we turn away from God. So what did He do? He took His straight to God. God, here's what I see. Here's what I don't understand, and I want to bring it to you. You remember I said that when I read that in Psalm 85, it immediately made me think of Habakkuk. This is why. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. This is the statement. It sounds a lot like Psalm 85, verse 8, the beginning of it. Look at Habakkuk 2 and verse 1. He's, he's challenged God, and God and him have begun this conversation. And so this is what he says I'll do. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. That's a high area. I'm going to set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. That's how we turn to God. God, here's everything I'm dealing with. Here's where I don't understand what you're doing or what you're not doing. But I tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to bring it all to you. I'm going to wait up on high for an answer. In other words, I'm going to continually look. What is it that is your will? What is it that is your way? And so God begins to describe some things. And I'm sure he didn't give Habakkuk all the details that he wanted. But he explained to him that God was going to raise up a nation that he would actually allow the Chaldeans to destroy Judah. And then, to make sure that he understood that God is fair, he says, then later on, I will raise up someone else to destroy that bloodthirsty nation of Judah, or or, of the Chaldeans. And so you can imagine now, here's a man that was living, if you will, in a small world. He was living in the present time. And now God backs up and says, let me show you what's happening in the big picture. Let me show you what's happening among nations. My people have turned their back from me. I'm going to raise up a nation and I'm going to let them conquer them. But because this nation is evil, I'm also going to raise up another nation later on and I'm going to allow them to be conquered. And you can imagine all of a sudden, if you really were humble, you'd say, wow, there's a lot more going on in this than what I ever pictured. Brethren, Do you realize you can trust God? Sometimes there are things happening in our life that we will not understand because sometimes we live in the present and we live in our own little world. But if we could see the big picture and all that God is doing, we can trust God. And so that's why when we come to the third chapter, for example, in verse 1 and 2, a prayer of Habakkuk. This is the the end of the book. And and so he says in verse 2, O Lord... I have heard your speech and was afraid. He's talking about that great and awesome respect he has for God. But listen to this. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the wrath, remember mercy. You see what he's doing there? He says, Lord, now I'm starting to grasp a little bit more of your work and I want your work to be alive. I want your work to be revived. And I know, God, a part of your work is to punish evil. But could I ask something in this prayer? Habakkuk, what do you want? Can you please have mercy on me? Habakkuk knew he was a sinner. 
God, if you're going to wipe out all sinners, you're going to wipe me out. When you wiped Judah out, could you save? Could you be merciful to some of us? Listen, there's coming a day of judgment and all sinners are going to be wiped out. Where does that put you? How desperately do you and I need the mercy of God? He believed in the mercy of God because he closes this prayer. Let's read the last words of his prayer, verse 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high heels. Not H-E-E-L-S. Isn't that amazing? This begins, this begins with him frustrated, sounding as if he's ready to give up. You don't hear the joy of salvation in the beginning. So what does he do? He turns to God. He takes it to God. And by the end of this little short book, you see him praising God saying, my joy has returned. You want revival in your life. You want the joy of God to return. The only place we can go is to God in order to receive that. But there is a sobering line in here in Psalm 85 we need to address. Look back again at verse 8. Psalm 85, the first part is what we just looked at in verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But notice this line. But let them not turn back to folly. Do you hear the doubt of the psalmist here? They've been allowed to come back and to start rebuilding Jerusalem. And we don't know where they are at this point because we don't know exactly when this chapter was written. Maybe they're, they're starting to build back the temple. Maybe the temple is well underway and they're, they're needing to build back the wall. We don't know exactly what's happened. But in this line, do you see what he's saying? He's already asked, Lord, please restore us. Please revive us. And now he's saying, Lord, I'm going to wait for your answer. But then it flashes through his mind. Lord, please help these people. Please help us not to go back to our folly again. He knew what the nature of Israel had been. Do you realize that by the time we close the Old Testament, there's at least seven major times that Israel would be close to God, but then over a period of many years, they would leave God and God would allow a nation to, to rise up and God would use that nation to chastise them, to bring them back in a humble state so that they would need, so that they would know they need God. And then in that humility, they would turn to God and they would cry out for God and the prophets would help them find God again. And do you see what the psalmist is saying? God, help us to not go back to that folly again. Listen, we just looked at the fact that it is revival to turn to God. It is folly. It is foolishness to turn from God. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, Jesus told about the day of judgment. I want to emphasize this. Jesus told about the day of judgment. And Jesus said, I want to show you what's even going to happen in the kingdom of heaven in the first few lines, the first 10 verses of Matthew 25. And he told about 10 virgins. And he says, five of them are going to be wise and five of them are going to be folly, foolish. Who, who were the foolish ones? 
Apparently they all had been a part of the kingdom of heaven because they were all going and they were waiting for the bridegroom. But the five that were foolish were the ones that did not remain prepared. They went out to wait, but did not take the oil for their lamp. And so then when the bridegroom was delayed, they had no oil. And then while they slept, they heard the cry, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And they jumped up and they turned to the wise men and said, let us bar some oil. Where are you today? If Jesus Christ came right now, would you be crying out, give me just a few seconds to make my life right with God. It's foolish to not turn to God while you have time and life and opportunity. And if you're waiting, it's foolish to wait. And the five that were prepared said, we wouldn't have enough oil for ourselves and for you. How precious is your salvation? Your salvation is too precious to let someone else take it from you. That's how precious your salvation is. The five wise individuals says, we will not give up our salvation. And they kept their oil and they waited upon the Lord. And the five foolish ran. Can you imagine how they scurried trying to buy the oil quick enough to go back for the bridegroom? Can you imagine how they scurried? Sell it quicker. Here's the money. Keep it all. We don't want change back. Just give us the oil. Give us the oil. Can you imagine when they ran back? Where's the five wise ones? They've went in with the bridegroom and it says the door was shut. Let's read those last few lines that Jesus wanted us to know about this. In verse 11, afterwards the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Revival is when we turn to God. Foolishness is when we turn away from God. And if there's anything in your life right now that is keeping you from being with God, and if you're not willing to move away from it and to God, God would say, that's foolish. You're risking too much. It's foolish. Well, really, what is the hope? What is the confidence? Perhaps one of the most unusual ways that the characteristics of God and Jesus Christ and the Spirit are described in the Old Testament might very well be what we read here in verse 10. Let's look again at this as we start to bring this lesson around. Here's where the, the answer, this is, this is the beauty of the answer. This is the strength of the answer. This is the meat of the answer. And notice what he says in verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Have you ever thought about mercy and truth meeting? How horrible would it be if we had truth and no mercy? But, but he's not finished there. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Mercy and truth, they met, it's personified. And, and righteousness, righteousness and peace they also have met and they love each other. They cling to each other. They kiss each other. What is the psalmist trying to show us here? We wouldn't be talking about restoration if we didn't have these four characteristics, not found in us first, found in God, offered to us. What is mercy? 
Mercy is that loving kindness. It's that favor. It's very much akin to grace. Sometimes we say grace is when we receive a wonderful, generous gift that we don't deserve. And mercy is when we do not receive something negative that in other hands we do deserve. But do you see the idea of mercy is that loving kindness. It is that favor that says, even though you may not deserve this, I want to offer it to you. Or this that is painful that you do deserve, I in my loving kindness do not want to offer it to you. Do you realize that Jesus was this personification of all of these things? There's no way the psalmist could know that he was speaking of Jesus in the fullness of everything that Jesus was. He wrote about more than what he could have understood, but I'm glad that he did. When you think about this mercy, what was he saying? Well, you remember when the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Mercy. Mercy. Or when John the Baptist looked at the beginning of earth, the earthly ministry of Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Mercy. But mercy meant truth. What is truth? Truth is certainty, trustworthiness. You can count on truth. Jesus Christ came, and, and notice how mercy or grace and truth met together in incarnation. John 1 talks about the incarnated Christ, and, and in verse 14, the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Notice this, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ in John 14 and 6 says, I am the way, the truth. What's He saying? You can count on me. I'm true, not only my words, but my life. I am true. In other words, when he said in John 3 and 16, talking to Nicodemus, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice, Jesus had not yet died on the cross, but he could say with certainty that it was going to happen because Jesus was truth. And you know what happened? A few years later, he died on the cross. Was that a surprise? No, he's truth. Everything that Jesus says, it's true. So if Jesus tells you, you can have mercy extended to you, it's true. Do you believe Jesus? When he said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He speaks truth. Do you believe in that truth? But notice righteousness. We have mercy, we have truth, we have righteousness. Righteousness is the law that God has created and put into place that is always right. There's natural law, and God's natural law is always right. Here on earth, you can drop a ball and it will always go to the ground. The law of gravity is consistent. It is righteous. God has created moral laws. We could go through the works of the flesh and every one of those works of the flesh, they are unrighteous every time. Drunkenness isn't only unrighteous if you're driving. Drunkenness is unrighteousness every time. Fornication is wrong every time. Idolatry is wrong every time. You just go through the list of, of the works of the flesh and lying and stealing and all of those things. Listen, what is righteousness? Righteousness is this wonderful standard that God is. 
where things are right and his religious laws and his spiritual laws, they are right. And where does that leave us? That leaves us in a desperate situation because we're not always right. And here, righteousness and peace, they meet and they kiss and they form this relationship. What is peace? The Hebrew word, you know it, shalom. Shalom is the idea of well-being, health, good, even friendly. How can you and I ever be at peace when the standard of righteousness is so high? If it were not for the mercy of God and the truth of who Jesus is. Listen, we can't talk about revival unless mercy and truth, righteousness and peace of God is offered to us. And Isaiah 9, out of all the names that Jesus Christ was given, remember it was prophesied that His name would be that He was the Prince of Peace. Are you tired of carrying the burdens of your scars and your scratches? Are you ready for something else? There's one that can offer restoration. There's one that can offer revival. We can't do it apart from Him. We can't do it because we deserve it. We do it because He loves us that much. We do it because He is the God of righteousness. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of truth. He is the God of peace. And He offers that to us. And there's no other way. I'd like to close by reading 1 Peter, the first chapter, in verse 18. 1 Peter 1 Verse 17 starts laying it out, but for time's sake, look at 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. How are you redeemed? Because you're just that good. There's nothing on earth that we could bring to God that would redeem us. God, look at this great amount of silver I can bring you. It can't redeem us. It's only by the precious blood of Jesus. This morning, are you alive? Are you alive spiritually? Are you alive by the mercy and the peace of God? by the truth and the righteousness that comes only from God. If we can help you in any way, if we can help you as one that is not a Christian that wants to come and repent and confess and be baptized, we'd love to do that. If you've already become a Christian and you need to be revived again, you need that life restored. There's not anybody here perfect. Any of us here alive is because of restoration and revival.